Awesome. So we're going to continue. We've been going through the book of Exodus. We're in that time that they're in the, the desert and gleaning lessons from the desert. Today I want to talk for a few minutes about a holy priesthood. And this came up a little bit earlier in the desert. You'll remember, some of you may recall, when God's told them, hey, you all get a uniform. No special privileges here. You all get to play. You're all holy priests. And they went, no, 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 no. That's too scary. And they said, God, we want you to talk through Moses and keep your distance. And it broke God's heart. And so, very reluctantly, God set up a, a, a special priesthood. But we know through the new covenant that that was restored, wasn't it? What God originally intended for the people of Israel in the Old Testament, it, the New Testament, the priesthood of all believers was restored. Um, and so we're going to look at that a bit, uh, the, today's topic through those lenses. That This is not about a special category or, or an elite of God's people. This is about us as a community. And I'm going to argue that discerning God and knowing God is not an individual thing. It's a communal thing. And the more we understand that, the richer is going to be our experience of God and our encounter with God. Now, this is, I love these big words, so this is the penultimate Sunday. Isn't that great? I love that. Penultimate. I remember when I was working at UBC, they said, you know, the penultimate students. I thought, ooh, that's a beautiful word. I went around saying that. Finally, after a few months, I said, what does that mean? And um, um, I found out it means the semi, it's like the last year before the last year. So it's like if you're a four-year student, then it's the third year. So this is the penultimate Sunday before my graduation. Next Sunday, I'll be graduating. Um, most of you know that I've been taking um, a three-year intensive with Soul Streams on spiritual direction. I started with a one-year living from the heart, which was about learning to live the contemplative life, and then two years of the art of spiritual direction. And I don't have a lot of time to talk about it, but it's been an incredible time. And believe it or not, I started that right after I came home from sabbatical. Remember that? That's hard to believe. Three years. Wow. So I thought I would introduce today um, by, and by the way, that's why I, I will be uh, away next Sunday with Kathleen at Rivendell for that event. I'd like to have a bigger party locally here sometime later, but um, Joanna will be teaching and it'll be a great time here together. But I thought I would uh, offer to you a definition of spiritual direction that has to do with the priesthood of all believers, I believe. Spiritual direction is with the premise that the Holy Spirit is our director. It is hearing, discerning, and responding to God's continual, constant initiatives of love towards us, all with the help of others. That we are not designed or wired or created or capable uh, to discern God's will on our own. That we need help. And it's because we do a bad job of self-awareness that we need the help of others. So God has designed us. Even, even Moses' encounter at the burning bush, there was a whole context of Moses. This is all about a community. A community that you're going to be engaged with, that knows me and that walks with me. And so it's kind of with that premise that I want to launch into today, talking about a holy priesthood and what, that, what the implications are. And it's, 
We're going to go into some really ancient texts. I'm surprised how many surprise visitors we get at our church when they come and they hear that we're walking through the Old Testament like this. I go, well, it's the Bible. It's the only Bible Jesus had. It's the only Bible the early church had. You think about it. And so we believe that the New Testament is the uh, interpretation of the Old Testament by writers of the Gospels who had encountered Jesus. And so we, I don't like calling it Old and New Testament. I call it the First Covenant and the Second Covenant. And the Second Covenant builds on the first one. Its roots are in the First Covenant. So one of the catechisms of the early church, you know what they did for Gentiles? They versed them in the Old Testament. They just grilled them, made them understand the whole tabernacle and the temple and the sacrifices. They said, you're not going to really get Jesus fully unless you get this. And so you read a book like 1 Peter, and it sounds like he's writing to Jews. And it was actually probably mostly Gentiles that Peter was writing to at that point. And, and, and it, it assumes all this knowledge about the Old Testament. So I, as, I, as I've said before, it's like going to a movie and you, you know, how many have ever kind of forgot to go to the bathroom before you went into the movie? Why don't they have breaks in the movie? I, I began to ask that when I hit 60. Why don't they have breaks in the middle of the movie? How many know when you, when you, you miss a chunk of the movie, just something's missing in the plot, in the theme, in the understanding of it? And so, and, and it's really a bummer when you miss the beginning. So that, that's why we do this. And Jesus is, of course, all over the pages of the Old Testament. So just a reminder, this, our story is the story of a creator on a relentless, reckless, as we heard about this morning, quest to reconcile all that was lost. But the creator has chosen not to do that apart from us. He has chosen to only do it in partnership with us. So that's the scandal of this thing, is that for some reason God said, I want to reconcile the world, but I will do it through people that I choose to walk with. And that means they're going to mess up, and they're going to mess up a lot. I was reading, I had to laugh this morning, when I was reading the text where Jesus is at the Last Supper, and he says to the disciples, you're all going to screw up, but I will be waiting for you in Galilee. And I thought, that's just so encouraging. You're all going to screw up, but I'll be waiting for you in Galilee. Peter, of course, you know, was adamant, but, but I just found that so helpful. Yeah. I thought, I'm, I'm one of those guys. And, uh, and so God called Abraham, as we know, from, from the, or the Chaldees, kind of the area of Iraq today that we would know as Iraq. And they came and they lived in this promised land. And then there was this, this point where because of crisis in Abraham's family, it was actually his grandchildren and great-grandchildren, because of famine, they ended up in Egypt through Joseph, the life of Joseph. And then after a few generations, they became very strong and powerful, and Egypt became uh, threatened by them and began to impress them. So God raised up Moses and, and led them out of slavery. But their journey back to uh, the Promised Land, it was not as the crow flies. It's this kind of winding journey. God takes them through the, through the desert. And the reason is, is they've been slaves for 400 years, and they didn't know how to be free. Freedom is a lot trickier than you think. And so God wanted to train them. And the first thing he trained them is for the first time in 400 years, he said, take a day off. 
They had no weekend. They had no, uh, it was just work, work. They were not human beings. They were human doings. They were machines of productivity. And now God, in there's, he tells them what freedom is for. Freedom is for relationship with me and with one another. Hear, O Israel. What's the greatest commandment? Hear. Pay attention. The Lord your God is one. He's everything, as we sang. He's everything. They were used to tribal and geographical deities, you know, the God of this, the God of that, the land, the sea, the whatever. And God says, no, I'm in everything. No dualism here. No Gnosticism. No spiritual and sacred and secular. None of that. I am everything. The Lord your God is one God. And you shall love the Lord your God with everything. All your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so that's what the Ten Commandments were about. They were freedom, freedom commandments. How to stay free. And so first thing, take a day off. He created the week, invented the weekend. The second thing was the pace. He said you can't cultivate meaningful relationships unless you are unhurried. So the pace they traveled was the pace of the slowest person in the crowd. They went the pace of the walkers and the wheelchairs and the strollers and the, the pregnant moms and the, the elderly, the 60-year-olds. So they, they learned a new pace of unhurriedness. They learned um, that everybody gets to play, and of course they turned that down uh, when God offered them that. And then they came to these different points. Remember, there was the, the water that came out of the rock. There was, you know, the, the whole thing of learning interdependency. Moses and Aaron and having his hands lifted by Aaron and her. So they're, they're learning interdependency, that we're not solitary beings here. We're interdependent. We're literally like the Trinity within one another. We're one. There's a unity. Uh, the theologians call it perichoresis. Jesus said, the Father's in me, and I'm in the Father, and I'm in you, and you're in me. There's this oneness. They're learning that. It's not enmeshment. It's not, not having boundaries, but it's learning the, that healthy interdependence where you have your uniqueness and your individuality, but we realize that we're in this journey together. So they're learning whole, the whole new way of living, and they arrive at Mount Sinai, where a lot of this story is now happening, and this is where things go a little bit sideways. Remember, God had offered them the priesthood. They said, no, we're going to keep our distance. And that's when things began to go downhill fast as Moses went uphill fast. He went up on top of the mountain. God says, well, they don't want to be with me, but can I have 40 days with you, Moses? I just want to hang out. And most of it was. They were eating and drinking up there on Mount Sinai. Of course, the people are looking up. And after 10, 15 days, they're used to slavery. They're used to the whip. And they're used to getting beaten and driven. And they're sitting there. What are they supposed to do for all that time? And by the way, they didn't know when Moses would come back. So finally they said, you know, we can't just sit here. we got to do something. God says, don't just do something. Sit there. <laughs> right? But they couldn't. Do you remember there was a kid? Don't just sit there. Do something. Right? So that's what. we got to take control. You know, this Yahweh character... He's too mysterious. He's too ambiguous. There's too much ambiguity here. We need a little more certainty. Remember a few months ago, I, I asked you that trick question. What's the opposite of faith? And everybody went doubt and unbelief. And we said, no, the opposite of faith is certainty. 
Certainty is where you got it all figured out. Now, there is, of course, some things we're certain about, but there's always going to be an element of mystery in walking with God. God just dumps all these issues. Doesn't he do that? We were talking about this, Tom and Joanna, before the service. God just dumped. Every generation has their issues, and God says, ha-ha, figure that one out. Right? So, um, so you're not so smart after all. You're going to just have to be a people of heart who follow me and, and live with mystery and live with disagreement. But what holds us together then? If we disagree about stuff, if even the same Bible, how is it that people can come to the same Bible and come to so many different conclusions? What is our, our unity based on? Our unity is based on not common theology, but it's common desire. To do the will of God. Jesus said, who is my family? Remember when his family was knocking at the door and, and his family saying, you need to put your family before ministry. And Jesus said, who is my family? My family, and he looked around at his disciples. He just told them the story of the parable of the sower and the seed. My family are those who hear the word of God and do it. That's what makes his family is this common desire. We may disagree. We may be like the disciples and we're, we're, you know, we're going to screw up again and going to have to meet him in Galilee. We may be uh, in all kinds of points of disagreement. But there's something that transcends that is this hunger and this desire that says, God, not my will, but yours be done, even though I mess that up so many times in a given day. That's what is the dividing line. May your will be done. May your kingdom come. And that's what brings us together. It's not believing the same thing. It's not snacks at the back table, as great as those are. It's not the kind of music we have in our style as a church. All of those things are great, and I'm not downplaying them, but I'm saying what brings us together is desire. It's desire. If it's just right beliefs, I got, I got better things to be doing. But it's holy desire that you and I feel, and sometimes we struggle Sunday morning, is do I really want to do this? But what keeps us coming sometimes when many of us work so hard to create a dwelling place where God can be with his people? It's desire. And sometimes it's hard work, and sometimes it doesn't feel good. Sometimes it just plain old sucks. I can't tell you how many times I've walked in on Sunday morning and said, God, I got nothing, but I'm here because I know what I want. I'm here because I know what I want. And I'm with people that want the same thing. Want it. That's, that's what makes us a family. That's what makes us a body. That's what makes us the house of God. So we want his will. We want God's will. And we know that he has called us to represent him to our city to one another. And uh, there's kind of this two-way movement with priests. There's where God is represented to people by priests, but there's also where the people are represented to God. So there's two, two movements where we come to God on behalf of our people and we carry their names on our hearts and we bear the burden of the people on our shoulders. And you'll see that in the symbolism of the, the priests today. They would come before God in the names of the 12 
would be over their heart and the 12 on their shoulders. And there's this, there's this whole, you know, the temple seems tedious. Sometimes you read through it if, it's, if you're suffering insomnia. It's a good way to read through it at night, all these details. But you know what I found out? There's just, it's just, just totally laced with relationship, with interrelationship and connection. So let me show you how. So remember, they wanted a God that they could figure out. They wanted a God that they could size up and control. And so the closest thing they could think is, they said, they said, to, they said to Aaron, and he was kind of a democratic leader, he said, okay, well, we'll give it a go. And he bowed to their wishes and decided to give them more clarity of what God looks like. And then he created this calf, and then he says, here's Yahweh. He actually called this God Yahweh. He said, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. And so, of course, there was this whole scenario where God says to Moses, that's it, I'm not going to go with you anymore. Um, first of all, he said, I'm gonna, I, why don't I just wipe them out and allow their, their actions to just take their due course, and we'll, we'll start with a new church. And Moses, of course, and of course, I believe, I don't have time to get into it, but I think that was a test of Moses' heart. And Moses intercedes for the people. And God relents. But then he says, okay, I'll go with you, but or, 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 I, I won't destroy you, but I'm not going to be with you. I'll send an angel. I'll send someone else. And of course, there's this big argument between Moses and God about that. And finally, Moses says, okay, God, if, if, you, don't, if you don't go with us, don't send us. Unless you're with us, because how else are we different than any other people on the face of the earth? So there's that. So finally God relents and God says, okay, I'm going to go with you, but here's how we're going to have to do it. They don't want to be my priesthood nation. They want a special category, so we'll work with that. That's not, we're not going to leave it there, but we'll accommodate that for a while. So he says, I want you to make me a house, and I'm going to live right in the middle of you. I'm going to live right amongst you, just like you asked me for now, this is a way we're going to do it so you don't die. This is a way we're going to do it so that everybody's safe here. So the first thing he tells them to do is to make some furniture. And the first thing he tells them to make is this Ark of the Covenant. And it's... Uh... Yes, Lord? Um, I wish... Um, so he said, I want you to start uh, with, with an ark. But the first thing they did is they took an offering. And it, it's amazing to me in this partnership relationship with God that when, when he says, I'm going to live amongst you, the first thing he asks God, the living God who created everything, asks him for an offering. So they bring an offering of gold and you know, material for the, the temple. And he instructs Moses to make this ark or chest of wood. It's made out of acacia wood, which is a common shrub in the desert. And then they overlaid it with gold. It was about 3.75 feet long, about two and a half, two and a quarter feet high. And, uh, and it was um, put, these rings were put on it, if you look there, put these gold rings, and then they made these poles to carry the ark. So no, no matter where they went with this ark, those poles stayed 
in the ark. It's interesting because you think if you, if you end up somewhere, you take the poles out, store them somewhere. But it was like this sense of being ready to move, mobility. And all of the furniture, it was the same. The other furniture that had this kind of apparatus, the poles stayed ready. Then he told them to make uh, some cherubim on the atonement cover. They called this the, the atonement cover or the mercy seat that went over the ark. In it, of course, they put the Ten Commandments. What else did they put in there? Do you remember? Manna and Aaron's staff that budded, wasn't it? Yeah, remember when they, when they were fighting about uh, uh, who should be leading the people, God demonstrated that Aaron was, was to be the priest. And, and then they made these cherubims. And by the way, the, there was a curtain in front of the room where this ark was to be left, which was called the, the, the room was called the Holy of Holies. And what was embroidered on that curtain? Does anybody remember? Same thing. So what's all this about cherubim? There's cherubim here, cherubim here. They're to, have their, they're to be looking down at this mercy seat. And remember the golden calf. This is important. Remember we've just seen the golden calf, this powerful, audacious God who led you out of Egypt, right? God says, here's me. So you have this cherubims and this mercy seat, and God says, I'll meet you right here. That's all they get is space. God gives them some space. He says, I'll meet you there. I'm going to meet you there. So what was the thing about the cherubim? Does anybody know? What's the thing about the cherubim? Hmm? Where did we last meet the cherubim? Garden of Eden. Remember? They were guarding the place of paradise, of meeting God. And God says, guess what? There's a way back. I'm going to make a way back for me. And you'll notice that even in the, the temple in Jerusalem they built, laced with all kinds of cherubim and palm trees. It's like the hope of paradise. The hope of being restored to God is being given. So then they made uh, some other, God told uh, Moses to make some other furniture. Another furniture was a table of showbread. This was to be, or, or the, it's called the bread of the presence. And this was to be kept in, in a compartment next to the Holy of Holies called the Holy Place. I'll show you a map of this in a minute. It's quite fascinating. I I haven't taught on this forever, and I'm, I'm thinking, where have you been all my life? This is amazing. But the um, bread of the presence was to be made, get this, the priests were responsible to bring freshly baked loaves every Sabbath, 12 of them, one for each of the 12 tribes, freshly baked bread. Do you know what we do every Sunday? Those of us who are serving and praying and preparing, we're getting bread ready. Not just me. Yeah, I work hard getting sermons ready, and other people on the teaching team do, but there's a lot more to it than that. We're getting fresh bread. God doesn't want moldy bread for his people. He doesn't want used bread, day-old bread. He wants fresh bread. There's something about a freshness in our lives. I was thinking as Jesus was about to... to to die on the cross, he's in the upper room and he, 
He's about to be betrayed and he's about to suffer and, and, every, and his disciples are about to abandon him and it says he took bread and it says he gave thanks. <laughs> I love that. How do you stay fresh? You give thanks. You remember to be thankful in the midst of all the crap, in the midst of all the hell and all the blah, blah, blah that the devil does in our lives, right? You say, thank you, Lord. You're good. Just like, is your name Paul or Tom? Oh, Tom. Tom said, sorry. I knew that. I'm just kidding you. Just like Tom said this morning, yeah, God's good. In the middle of it all, right? Freshly made bread. Then he told him to make the menorah, which is a, a candlestick, and you see this here, this is made out of, this is kind of the, the centerpiece, but then there was three wings of the candlestick with seven. Many believe represent the seven spirits of God that burn continually before the throne. You see that in the book of Revelation. And in Isaiah chapter 9, it talks about the spirit of wisdom and counsel and knowledge and discernment and understanding, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Seventh Spirit of God that brings light. And, and the responsibility of the priest was to light that every evening till morning so there was always light. Always light in the inner Holy of Holies. And then the last was the altar of incense, which was to be right before the Holy of Holies so that when the priest came in, the, literally the smoke was to cover where they almost couldn't see the ark when they came in. It was like this... And David, of course, said in Psalms, let my prayers be set before you like incense. And I, it was so cute at uh, the Aboriginal Center a, a couple of events ago, one of the, because First Nations people love, the, love incense and, and sweetgrass as, as a form of prayer. And this one lady, she's so sweet, she's just, you know, responding to God so beautifully in faith. And she says, you know, when I light up a cigar, it helps me, or cigarette, it helps me pray. I laugh. I thought, that is so cute. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll work on that. But, you know, it's, how many know God meets her right there? Of course he does. So, so if you look at the tabernacle, thing, so they took this offering and they got all these curtains made. And they took five curtains and, and looped them together with another group of five curtains. And they made what was called the tabernacle. And then they put a curtain in the middle. So this would have been the Holy of Holies there. And then this would have been the holy place where all those, those uh, uh, furniture were. And then they made an outer court. I think the tabernacle was probably about the, the length of this property. Like this part here. Probably the length of this property. And that would have probably been the length of the block. If you're just trying to get an idea of the size of it. And that was the... What's that? This is the Holy of Holies. What it, what, uh, you've been listening... What, what uh, piece of furniture is that? The ark. And what's that? Incense. What's that? Showbread and the candlestick. Or if you got it reversed, I think we'll give you half a point. So <clears throat> the priest, of course, once a year with this new system would take blood. And these, this was the laver. I'll show you that. I mean, it's a basin of water that they would always be asked to wash with before they went in. And this was, the, of course, the famous altar of burnt offerings. I was thinking of just doing a series, just talk, teaching about the different offerings because there's a lot about self-awareness and being 
approaching God. There's a lot of wisdom and insight that comes from these. It's very bloody, I'll warn you. Rob Bell started his Mars Hill Church with a <laughs> series on Leviticus. Brave guy. And uh, so, uh, so the priest would come through here, offer offering on the Day of Atonement, member, and go through the washings and go into the Holy of Holies. And remember, they would wear these bells and these pomegranates around their, their tassels, right, in this area, so that they'd know they were still alive when they were there. And they'd tie a rope to his foot, and if he stopped, the bell stopped, they'd pull him out, right? So uh, it was pretty serious business there. But they would come in, and he would take the blood of the atonement sacrifice and put it on the altar. And God would come. So this was the laver. This is the altar of uh, burnt offerings. This is a kind of a schema I found. So the Ark of the Covenant is there. The veil, the altar of incense, the menorah, the table of showbread, the door into the holy place, the laver, the altar of burnt offerings. And of course, they would come through, through there. And the Bible tells us that Jesus did this when he died on the cross. He didn't come into an earthly temple, but he went into the heavenly temple with this, not the blood of an animal, but his own blood. And he poured it on God's mercy seat. And the temple was torn, the veil, this temple was torn. And the way was open so that all of us can be priests again. And every day without all these barriers, like we heard this morning, we can come into the presence of God. Wow. I thought that was good. Um, so here's a few schemas. This is uh, the tabernacle in the wilderness, what it may have looked like, an artist's depiction of that. So they had these kind of goat skins that covered the, 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 uh, skin, the, the curtains of the temple. There's your labor there. There's your altar burnt offering. And there's the incense going up there. Sometimes that was the actual Shekinah glory, a presence, visible presence of God. Here's another schema where you can see inside the, the, uh, the furniture there. This, this is actually a um, tourist place in Israel near Elat. Uh, is it Elat? Did I get that right? Which is, it's called Timah Valley Park. So they've done a replica of the tabernacle. So that's an actual picture of a replica in Israel that they've done of the tabernacle. Now, I want you to look at the proximity where God's living. This is God's house. Look where the community is. This is God's longing to dwell in the midst of us, right? So I love this. This is, this. remember the Gershonites, Merarites, and what is it, Kohathites? These are the sons of, of Levi, three tribes or three clans and the Kohathites were responsible for the furniture. The Merites were responsible for the uh, curtains. And the uh, Gershonites, uh, the frames and posts, or, or reverse. Doesn't matter. You won't be tested on that. So here, on the east, this is east going here, you have the tribes of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon. They would camp this way. You notice this? See that? By the way, I want to show you something here. Notice this. Look at this. See the furniture? Do you see that? So again, you see this. See the cross? Like that? So I've heard Jewish rabbis who've come to Christ actually talk about this, that 
the cross was etched, even in the Old Testament. And so there's this kind of cross, a community of the cross. Yeah? So this was, it was quite organized. Like, so these, these are the priests. So when it was time to, to go, God's glory would lift and, and would, instead of being there, the glory of God would come over here, like this. There'd be this, the shofar, you know, the, the horn, right? Would, would blow. And who were the first to go? Do you remember? Who were the first to leave? Judah. The tribes of Judah, the tribes of Issachar and Zebulun would follow the cloud. The next group that would leave, they would then dismantle the tabernacle. I don't know why they waited. I guess they were so big, they didn't actually start dismantling the tabernacle until Judah started moving. So that's how, that's how big it was. It was like millions of people. So they, these guys would start dismantling the tabernacle and follow them. Then it was Reuben, Simeon, and Gad would fall in line this way. After they would follow the priests and the tabernacle there. Then the next group would be Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin would follow there. And then the last, Dan, thank you, Dan, rear guard there, kind of keeping, keeping watch over some of the enemies from behind us. Asher and Naphtali would fall in last. Careful instructions. Some of the detail. You know, it reminds me of Kim's uh, uh, manual she did for us. Have you guys seen that? Can you show us a copy of that? Is that there? Kim did this. Kim, you know, Kim was working on the PowerPoint. She does, she does this very, very detailed manual of how to do PowerPoint and the video on Sunday. And it is so good that one Sunday, I don't know, some, something had fallen through and we didn't have somebody. I went in there and within minutes, I had it up and running. That's the value of detail. And God said that details are not a devil, but they are a tool to help you know me and love me. So it's a tool of learning to pay attention. It's a, it's a tool of noticing details. So then they make the priest's robes. And so God told Moses, have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites along with his sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Athamar, so they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother, Aaron, to give him dignity and honor. Do you get this? This is amazing. These are slaves. These are people who just thought they were riffraff and marginalized. Is that my mic? Hmm? Oh. Sherry, thank you. I guess the Lord wants me to quit. So I think um, it might be... Okay, so it was a false alarm. We're okay. So I'm going to quit. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's a sign. So this was all good. I, it was really good. But I, I actually shared a lot with this to you. With, the, with you already. Remember what I shared about the, the stones over the heart? That's you and I were designed to carry people into the presence of God over our heart. Um, 
The priests would wear the names of the 12 tribes on their shoulders as well. So they wore, they had kind of this chest piece and they had a shoulder piece and it was all kind of woven together. So names, 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 people, people, people. You can't love God without people. You can't love people without God. It's just all interwoven, literally. Excuse the pun, right? So this is all good. Isn't that great? There's the pomegranates there. Another picture. That's John Wimber. So I already said this. Some observations. The greatest command. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Healthy relationships require mutual effort. God didn't, God's grace doesn't mean we do nothing. God's grace means we respond. And it takes work. It will always take work. I appreciate the Wesleyans for teaching us that. The practice of being present is always the most is perhaps the most arduous and rewarding of relational tasks of being attentive. And finally, we were designed so that God's will was meant to be discerned in community. The Urim and Thummim. Remember that word? Nobody really knows what it was, but it was these two stones. I'll just go back here. These two stones that they placed over the breastplate there. And tradition says that they lit up like a light bulb when they came before the Lord and asked the question. And if the answer was yes, then this stone would light up. If it was no, then this stone would light up. It's kind of a mystery because it's been lost, but it's all connected to community. It's all over the heart. It's all in context of names and relationships. So my goal, as I, the reason why I opened about sharing about spiritual direction is I desire that we become a community of spiritual direction, that we move that way where we learn to co-discern together and be with one another and be spiritual friends to one another, to, to share that passion, common longing we have for God's will. And... Think about the relational directions of being a priest. Some, one direction is this way, towards people from God, and the other direction is from people towards God. One is about prayer and intercession on behalf of the people. The other is about prophetic and evangelism on behalf of God to the people. Where do you tend to err? And who has God put in your life to, to, to keep you in balance, if I could use that word? To keep, you know, like... There's some people, they just have no problem believing. Their faith is great, and sometimes we resent them. We go, you know, why is it so easy for you? Have you ever thought that they might be a gift in your life to help you that are a little bit more skeptical and cynical and kind of more Thomasesque? Unless I see this, then I'll believe. You know, some of us are more oriented that way. But we need each other. And sometimes the people that are easy to believe, sometimes they need their feet brought, you know, nailed to the ground a little bit, and a little bit practical kind of reality check. And we need each other. But that's the beauty of the body of Christ, isn't it? Amen. Let's pray. Yeah. Just a quick, um, just a quick word about restoration. Just felt like the Holy Spirit is saying that he wants to restore... It's not a general word, because we all know we walk in redemption. God's always there. We're always waiting for healing. 
But it's a very specific word about restoration to joy. And restoration that would bring us back to that which gives us joy. So, for example, Peter, I don't know how long it's been that you've played the guitar. A couple of weeks. Wow. That's not that long. I was hoping you weren't going to say years. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think the Lord is on the music gift. There's giftings of music, and it brings you joy. So wait on the Lord and see if there's something that God has for you. There's a beautiful voice behind me today, Holly. And I just wanted to commend her voice because her voice brought me a lot of joy today. And perhaps it brings you joy. <coughs> so maybe the Lord is in- encouraging you today <coughs> to step forward in singing. I've always loved the atmosphere of school, so I'm kind of right now having an interview of going back into a a large school setting. I've always loved being in that setting. As a teacher, when I had to give up my classroom, it was very difficult. I kind of had to detox. And so I think the Lord is bringing us back to joy. So what is it that brought you joy? And, And come back, and maybe as Gordy said, as a community, we can help discern that. Uh, the joy of the Lord is our strength. So God is bringing us into a new season of joy instead of just like we're grunting and groaning and getting through it, right? So we all can identify with the grunting and the groaning. So let's just release the joy. Amen. I think that is the Urim and the Thummim of the new covenant. Is, is, you know, the Ignatians call it consolation, desolation. What what gives you life? And what takes you away from God? What takes you away from that life? Uh, and, and, and paying attention to that. And helping each other pay attention to that. So Lord, thank you for uh, today and just the, the joy and the life that we've enjoyed together as your people. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come again as you've been here from the very beginning. We don't need to invite you to, to, to be here because you've been here all morning. But just in any way that you want to come now and just touch people, uh, heal people, uh, just pray for your healing. I'm just hearing the, the words, there's enough healing in this place for every sickness, every disease, every malady, every infirmity. There's enough healing in this room. So we release it now, Lord. In Jesus' name. And Lord, would you lead us and teach us and guide us, being a community of spiritual direction, of being a community that of priests to one another, to help each other pay attention to what you're doing in our lives. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.